to America now. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you're with us or you are with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never surrender. It's what you've been waiting for all day. Buck Sexton with America Now. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. Sharp mind, strong voice. Buck Sexton. Brave young men have been taken from us. Many others have been grievously wounded. Are we to tell them their sacrifice was wasted? They gave their lives in defense of our national security every bit as much as any man who ever died fighting in a war. We must not strip every ounce of meaning and purpose from their courageous sacrifice. We're a nation with global responsibilities. We're not somewhere else in the world protecting someone else's interests. We're there protecting our own. I received a message from the father of a Marine in Lebanon. He told me, in a world where we speak of human rights, there is a sad lack of acceptance of responsibility. My son has chosen the acceptance of responsibility for the privilege of living in this country. Certainly in this country, one does not inherently have rights unless the responsibility for these rights is accepted. Dr. Kenneth Morrison said that while he was waiting to learn if his son was one of the dead. I was thrilled for him to learn today that his son Ross is alive and well and carrying on his duties in Lebanon. Let us meet our responsibilities. For longer than any of us can remember, the people of the Middle East have lived from war to war with no prospect for any other future. That dreadful cycle must be broken. Why are we there? Well, a Lebanese mother told one of our ambassadors that her little girl had only attended school two of the last eight years. Now, because of our presence there, she said her daughter could live a normal life. With patience and firmness, we can help bring peace to that strife-torn region and make our own lives more secure. That was President Reagan on October 27th, 1983. He was speaking just days after the October 23rd bombing of the Marine barracks in Beirut, a mass casualty event against U.S. troops that was the beginning of a much longer uh, brutal saga of jihadist violence against both civilians and our forces in the Middle East and around the rest of the world. Now, in that speech, you certainly heard much of what you would expect from Reagan, a, uh, a great president, a man who helped bring down the Soviet Union and win the Cold War, a man who had an ability to uh, communicate and an understanding of the U.S. role in the world and a love of the American people and what we mean also for non-Americans all over the world. It should also be noted, though, that Reagan, like any commander-in-chief, was not always perfect in his decision-making processes or Perhaps a better way of saying it is that not everything worked out the way that it was supposed to in terms of the long 
long-term strategic objective. Some months after he gave that speech, in which he was redoubling efforts of the multinational force in Beirut, separating various factions in a brutal and lengthy civil war, the civil war in Lebanon stretching from 1975 to 1990, 15 years. Some months after he gave that speech, the U.S. presence in Beirut, U.S. military presence, came to an end and we withdrew. And it wasn't for some time after that that there was a long and sustained ceasefire. Many of the same arguments, discussions, and analyses that you will hear today, you have been hearing, I'm sure, over the last 24 hours with regard to the U.S. role in Syria, uh, have are really echoes of what you would have heard back in the early 1980s during the Reagan administration. Many of the uh, problems that we face in the Middle East, in fact, the factions that we face in a situation like Syria are quite similar to what we would have, what we did see, what U.S. troops, U.S. Marines and others uh, did see in Lebanon in the early 1980s during the course of this multinational force, UK, US, Italy, and France, four European, uh, sorry, four powers, three European allies, and working together to try and just keep these, all these different factions from continuing in this brutal civil war that people, civilians, of course, as always, were caught in the crossfire of. You had the PLO, you had an Israeli military incursion, you had Shia Arab factions, you had Maronite Christian factions, Sunni Arab factions, uh, you had street-to-street fighting in Beirut, which had been called the Paris of the Middle East for uh, many years, um, a beautiful city, and with a long-standing tradition of uh, internationalism and cosmopolitanism. And it was completely and, and utterly destroyed, a pockmarked and shell, uh, shell-shocked reminder of just what can happen, uh, what can happen when you have the brutality of all kinds of ethnic and sectarian other hatred coming together. So we've been in a place similar to where we are now in terms of the decisions that we face. And I know we're hearing quite a lot about how we must do something about Syria. Uh, I would want to tell you over the course of the next hour or so on the show, I wanted to spend some time really looking at this issue uh, and trying to give both the necessary context as well as some analysis that may break with what you're hearing from others on the right, other conservatives, even other GOP pundits. Because to me, this really matters a great deal. If we are going to commit U.S. troops to an intervention in Syria, not just against the Islamic State, that I think is much more doable, though still fraught with its own risks. If we're going to commit U.S. troops to toppling the Assad regime, or even trying to stop the Assad regime, which I don't know how you can do that at this point without toppling it, we have to understand that we would be getting in the middle of a civil war many years into it that is similar to what we faced in Beirut, Lebanon, and the rest of Lebanon, uh, but on a much larger scale. Though some of the players 
are largely the same. The Assad regime and its influence in Lebanon in the 1980s uh, was a profound part of much of the conflict there. So I wanted to take time with you to talk about this instead of just spending all of our time together today on, oh, you know, did you hear the latest thing that someone said about how Susan Rice isn't a liar? Oh, isn't that so ridiculous? I think that's necessary as well. There's an effort to destroy this White House, to delegitimize this president, and you can't let that narrative go unchallenged. Uh, But this matters to me a great deal more than the the latest back and forth, the latest partisan uh, ping pong over the Trump-Russia conspiracy that is never going to be proven but will also never go away. And we should understand that because those on the left who believe that Trump is has sold out his country. Uh, They'll never give that up. But now we have the president of the United States at least making some early indications that he would consider a commitment of U.S. troops into Syria or would do something about the Assad regime. Well, I think the Obama administration had a great opportunity to solve this crisis a long time ago when he said the red line in the sand. And when he didn't cross that line after making the threat, I think that set us back a long ways, not only in Syria, but in many other parts of the world, because it was a blank threat. I think it was something that was not one of our better days as a country. So I do feel that, Julie. I feel it very strongly. To the chemical I now have responsibility, and I will have that responsibility and carry it very proudly. I will tell you that it is now my responsibility. It was a great opportunity missed. I think everything he said there about the Obama administration is true. In fact, I said it to you here on the show yesterday. Um, if you are to look at the situation, drawing this historical parallel for the purposes of illuminating the present moment, if you were to look at the Uh, the situation in the early days of uh, U.S. action in Beirut. You had had Jimmy Carter as president beforehand, a far-left Democrat who allowed uh, much of U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East to be upended, allowed our interests to erode and in some cases collapse, allowed allied regimes to collapse, and then you had a strong Republican president come into office. But as I pointed out to you, the Intervention in Lebanon was not a strategic success, one of the forgotten uh, military efforts of the Reagan administration. It did not achieve its it did not achieve its objective. And of course, we lost hundreds, uh, hundreds of our own in that horrible day on October 23rd, 1983, the bombing of the Marine barracks. So there are some similarities you could draw between the Obama administration leaving it for the successor regime, and Jimmy Carter leaving a mess in the Middle East as well. But Obama, I mean, but Trump is right here. It's not Obama's problem anymore. Now it's Trump's problem. I do think the media coverage of what's going on in Syria right now has to be put in a context of all of a sudden there is nonstop coverage of how terrible and the atrocities and uh, it's a way of raising awareness in a, in a proper way of what's happening in Syria. But I also think that there's a much greater willingness to show just how terrible Syria is now that President Obama is no longer in office. I think that our media here does take that into account because the usage of chemical weapons in Syria is not new. In fact, it's happened many times. 
This is just the most recent event where chemical weapons have been used. But the Obama administration negotiated a deal for the removal of chemical weapons from Syria that did not stop the usage of chemical weapons. And, oh, by the way, followed up the administration drawing a red line that they did not enforce on chemical weapons. And we cannot forget that. We have been very clear to the Assad regime, but also to other players on the ground that a red line for us is we start seeing a whole bunch of chemical weapons moving around or being utilized. Uh, that would change my calculus. That would change my equation. Didn't change his calculus if that was supposed to mean that he would do something about the usage of chemical weapons. Now, just a note here as we go further into this over the course of this hour, um, and also, by the way, uh, we will talk about Trump's meeting with Xi Jinping, the premier of China. We'll talk about Susan Rice and the latest allegations there. We'll talk about North Korea and Secretary of State Rex Tillerson, uh, that Steve Bannon is no longer on the NSC. And yes, I might even get to that Pepsi commercial that has been pulled. So we have a very packed show. But this hour... As a former uh, CIA analyst on the Middle East, who spent time in the Middle East, uh, who has been in two war zones, who has, as a journalist, been to the refugee camp at Zachary and looked in the eyes of the Syrian children years ago as they had been driven from their homes and witnessed atrocities and terror that no human being should ever have to see. Um, and I worked uh, against an enemy in Iraq that is very similar to what we face today in Syria with the Islamic State. And I have to say, I'm somewhat surprised sometimes that there aren't more from what I would call the 9-11 generation, which is not so much a description of an age range as just those who joined up to fight after 9-11. Not enough of our voices in the media. Uh, There are a lot of people that have very big audiences and that have very big opinions on this matter that have uh, never served and have certainly no service in war zones. That doesn't delegitimize their opinions, but I just wish there were more people uh, in media in general who were able to weigh in on this, um, who have at least some personal familiarity with what it would mean to militarily intervene in Syria based on what we've seen in Iraq and Afghanistan. How many friends of yours, family members, perhaps many of you listening as well, have quite a close connection to U.S. Uh, military action against uh, the precursor to the Islamic State. Uh, And I wanted to give you some of, well, the the benefit of what I think is a useful background here, having been a CIA analyst and spent time in some of these places, and talk to you about what what a Syrian intervention would really mean. If, If toppling Assad is now where this president is going, we need to get a very sober sense of what that would look like. And this is not about cheerleading for Trump. This is not rah, rah, make America great again. Anything Trump says is awesome. This is serious business. Let's talk a bit about it. It crossed a lot of lines for me. When you kill innocent children, innocent babies, babies, little babies, with a chemical gas that is so lethal, people were shocked to hear what gas it was. That crosses many, many lines beyond the red line. Many, many lines. Headline in the Wall Street Journal. Trump signals Syria policy shift after suspected attack. He also called it a terrible affront to uh, to humanity, saying that it uh, crossed a line for him 
And everyone is assuming now there must be something that comes out of this that is different. Uh, It wasn't long ago that it was thought to be understood that the Trump administration had no interest in removing Assad from power. Now people are saying, well, maybe that's not the case. Uh, Maybe he will do something about the Assad regime. But as I was saying to you before we had to go into a break, there have been many incidents of chemical weapons usage by the Assad regime. Of course, this comes after not only a deal brokered by Secretary of State John Kerry uh, under Obama's uh, time in office, but a deal that they all that they trotted around as something to be proud of. So, yeah, they they got rid of the chemical weapons, except for the chemical weapons that are used on civilians in uh, many cases. I mean, the U.N. has been pulling together for years now uh, documented instances of chemical weapons usage stretching back to 2012. Uh, The chemical weapons have been used. Uh, There's the Ghouta attack, a suburb of Damascus, the capital of Syria. Uh, This is not new. And it should also be noted that while the usage of chemical weapons is, of course, a violation of the Geneva Convention and is a a terrible way for anyone, for any civilian to die, uh, there are civilians that are killed on a regular basis in Syria that are buried under the rubble after Russian airstrikes that are dying because of barrel bombs pushed out of Syrian military helicopters over civilian areas. 500,000 people are estimated to have been killed here. The horrors of the Syrian civil war are by no means new. In fact, they've become, I think, such a regular occurrence that many in the news media and many around the world have lost a lot of interest in it. Uh, I think that right now, because the administration that was in power is gone, there is a willingness to pull back the covers and show everybody just how terrible this is and now turn to the Trump administration and say, what are you going to do about it? And as he said in that soundbite before we came back uh, from break, he recognizes that as commander in chief, this is his responsibility. Uh, But he is in a tough spot. Um, I'll talk to you a, a bit here about what an intervention might entail and what some of the recent history of U.S. actions in the Middle East, in Iraq, uh, and before that, as I was uh, talking to you at the top of the show, in Lebanon, uh, where many of the same dynamics and players were involved, and our efforts there uh, did did not go as planned at all. So we need to be very careful here with the direction of this administration on this foreign policy matter, because I will say, I believe there are some basic underlying foreign policy principles that Donald Trump has. Like, I understand what the enemy is, radical Islam, and I'll say that, but how to fight against that enemy, that requires a lot of uh, serious and detailed analysis and organizing principles for policy. We'll hit those in just a minute. Uh, If you have any thoughts on A change in policy from President Trump on Syria would very much like to hear what you think about all this, and especially if any of you listening served uh, in the military in any capacity, if you served in Iraq or Afghanistan, what do you think about the possibility of a U.S. military uh, 
action of some kind in Syria. Maybe it's just airstrikes. Maybe it's nothing. I am actually, if you're going to put me on the spot and say, Buck, what are your expectations for what Trump will do in response to this chemical weapons attack? Um, and by the way, I, I mentioned before, the Gouda is the one that received the Gouda chemical weapons attack. I believe it was sarin gas that was used received the most attention in the past. There have been reports many other times of chemical weapons attacks in Syria. Uh, sometimes that includes chlorine attacks, which aren't, which is a chemical weapon, but or can be used as a chemical weapon, but is not of the same uh, caliber and lethality as some of the other uh, CWs that can be deployed on uh, the battlefield or against civilians, as we've seen. So I don't think that there will be a change in policy from the administration on this. Um, there might be an escalation of existing policies. Uh, we currently are working with militias in Syria on the ground that are trying to get closer to Raqqa, the Islamic State's capital in Syria. We are hoping to defeat and destroy the Islamic State. That is not a change, uh, but that is a continuation and perhaps an acceleration under Trump. We will destroy ISIS. And we will protect civilization. We have no choice. We will protect civilization. King Abdullah and I also discussed measures to combat the, the evil and ideology that inspires ISIS and plagues our planet. In addition, we also acknowledge the vital role that Jordan has played in hosting refugees from the conflict in Syria. We have just announced that the United States will contribute additional funds to Jordan for humanitarian assistance. This aid will help countries like Jordan host refugees until it is safe for them to return home. The refugees want to return home. I've visited with those refugees, as I mentioned to you before. I've been in Zatari, which is the largest Syrian refugee camp in Jordan. When I was there, it was about a hundred and 10,000 people in tents in the middle of the desert in crushing heat. Uh, and I was there with a friend who was also acting as translator, interviewing families and talking to them. Uh, they were terrified, uh, obviously. Many of them had stories to tell that would uh, not only haunt them for years to come, but when you hear them, it's tough to shake off what you've been through just to uh, be exposed in person to the the difficulties and the atrocities that have been far too regular an occurrence in Syria. So it is it is not new, and that by no means diminishes the pain that is happening right now, but I just want to point out that this has been a reality in Syria for years, and it is a reality that the media did not hold the previous administration to account on at all. Um, in fact, o Obama was able to stand idly by after a lot of proclamations about how Syria was bad and how at one point Assad had to go. And then there was the red line and then there was removal of chemical weapons. Uh, the machinery of murder continued on unabated in Syria. In fact, it got worse and accelerated. And destroying the Islamic State is a part of this that has been underway for some time. But the expansion of U.S kinetic military actions in Syria to include toppling the Assad regime uh, would come with a lot of risks. Um, but right now, people, because they see what's going on uh, in Syria because of the footage and the photos, there is an emotional 
human reaction to this, that we, we must do we must do something. Uh, you have uh, Nikki Haley at the United Nations talking about this chemical weapons attack. We awoke to pictures, to children, foaming at the mouth, suffering convulsions, being carried in the arms of desperate parents. We saw rows of lifeless bodies, some still in diapers, some with visible scars of a chemical weapons attack. Look at those pictures. We cannot close our eyes to those pictures. We not, cannot close our minds of the responsibility to act. I would like to know, and we will find out, I suppose, in the days and weeks ahead, what that responsibility entails. Um, I, I worry sometimes, and we shall see how it, how it happens, how it plays out in this administration, but that those who have been doing the fighting for the United States in Iraq, in Syria, I'm sorry, in Iraq, in Afghanistan, and elsewhere, I, I worry that they may um, not have enough of a voice sometimes at the upper reaches of party power with the Democrats or the Republicans. It seems to be far too quick a reaction sometimes in response to this to say, well, we should just send in, just send in a you know, Marine Expeditionary Force or let's just put more troops in harm's way. Um, those who have done the fighting have had experiences and those who have been a part of these wars on the civilian and military side have experiences that uh, need to be much more a part of the of the conversation right now at the very top levels uh, than I think they often are. Um, and you have a lot of policy wonks and people with political influence weighing in on this to say, well, we must do something. What exactly are we going to do? We've been engaged in airstrikes against the Islamic State. Do we really want to engage in airstrikes against the Assad regime? Do we think that the Russians would just stand aside and let that happen? Are we going to shoot down Russian planes that refuse to abide by a declaration that there's a no-fly zone over Syria? You start to walk down this pathway and it gets uh, very troubling very quickly. And uh, given the realities of what we've seen in Iraq in recent years, given the truth of the U.S. effort to rebuild Afghanistan, to rebuild Iraq, I think we've uh, had certainly lessons to be learned in both cases. Um, committing us to rebuilding Syria, which is what we would be doing. I mean, if you get rid of the Assad regime, understand that there would be vicious factions of many different kinds that would all of a sudden come to the fore and would want to take power in that country. Uh, in Iraq, you had you had Shia, Sunni, and Kurd, as well as some other smaller uh, ethnic and, and religious groups uh, but predominantly Shia, Sunni, and Kurd. It's been referred to as an Arab Yugoslavia. These different groups held together by a strong man, by a tyrannical state, and then we came in and upended that and had to deal with the aftermath and an insurgency and years of very difficult fighting. In Syria, you have, in many ways, a similar circumstance. You have a Sunni Arab uh, majority population. You have an Alawite minority sect, uh, which is what Assad himself belongs to, 
and you also have Kurdish elements and, and others in the country, and various jihadist and Islamist groups stretching from, well, maybe they're not that bad to their ISIS. They're as bad, if not worse, than al-Qaeda. They're just every bit the vicious, bloodthirsty jihadists that we've been fighting now for decades. There's no way to get rid of Assad without risking a U.S. Uh, military occupation right now, at least. Nothing that we've planned out of Syria. The Obama administration did try to train soldiers. You will recall that was something that was underway. And I think at the end, the end calculation, based on what we saw in the papers, was that they spent $500 million to train a few dozen soldiers, something like that. A lot of money for very little effect. This was with regard to the Free Syrian Army to create a non uh, a non jihadist ground force to topple Assad because everyone understands that once you get involved in this and you decide that you're going after this regime, which, by the way, I would still imagine has real chemical weapons uh, and would would go down fighting. I don't believe that Assad, given what he's already been willing to do to his own people, would just quietly walk away and say, all right, sure, you know, send me to the International Crib- uh, Criminal Court and let's see what happens. That's not going to be the way this plays out. So we can hear a lot about this, and I understand the emotional impact of what we've seen in the last 24 hours, uh, but I I just wanted to sound a note of caution here, um, because we have an administration that does not have a ton of uh, foreign policy expertise in the decision-making ranks. That's just a fact. Uh, It was true of the administration before it as well, but this administration does not have people with a foreign policy background. Sure, in some of the major foreign policy roles, now you've got McMaster at the National Security Council as a national security advisor. You have Mattis at the Pentagon, but neither uh, the president nor uh, Steve Bannon nor Kushner, you know, you go down the line. These are not foreign policy, certainly not national security foreign policy experts by any means. And I think that they will take a pause here and consult with those who do have deep and long-standing expertise on these issues. Um, because I, I would say this, I would not give the order to put U.S. troops uh, in a position where it was anything other than limited special operations and air, air, and, air assistance and intelligence help to the Syrian forces that are trying to get rid of the Islamic State And I don't know if I would cross the threshold against the Assad regime. I just don't think that's going to be a wise move. People don't want to hear that right now. They don't want to say that right now. Um, But uh, but I wouldn't give the order. And I think many of those who have had the experience, um, which few of the opinion class, I mean, not none, but not as many as I would have liked to see, uh, few of the opinion class have had that experience of being on the phone in a foreign war zone with you know your spouse or on the phone with your kids or your parents and you wonder in the back of your mind if this is the last time because uh, you're going to go get on a chopper or get on a and get on a humvee and you're going to head out into the red zone if you've never done that it is an experience that certainly clarifies the mind about foreign policy objectives and U.S. military might and what we're trying to accomplish in specifically the Middle East, but of course in any place where the U.S. has uh, military in harm's way. Um, And when you've seen the risks that others have taken in those situations in the war zones, I think it 
slows down considerably that impulse to say, well, let's just go in there and fix this. Because a lot of the people that are going to be doing the fixing um, are will, will be placed in very grave danger. Uh, and we better be darn sure we know what we're trying to achieve and what the ultimate objective is here. So I understand the emotional appeal, and I get it, and I know this is all heavy. We're talking about chemical weapons and children dying in the streets and Assad and this butcher and ISIS, and this is all terrible. But this is a continuing legacy of the years, the years leading up to this current moment where the U.S. had a much better opportunity at the foreign policy level to intervene to do something. Um, and the caution that was being constantly propped up by the media, the caution from the Obama administration as wisdom has led us down a very ter- a very disastrous path here in terms of the realities on the ground in Syria. It did prevent U.S. troops from losing their lives in Syria, and that can't be overlooked here in this process at all. That's uh, that's primary goal. But now that we're looking at this once more, we are in an even worse situation to affect the outcome. And I uh, would hope that we could take a moment here and realize that defeating ISIS, sure, we need to continue to do that and work with allies on the ground. We need to continue the air campaign, finish up what's going on in and around Mosul in Iraq. Um, But charging in to stop the slaughter in Syria, uh, we are late on that one. And I don't think it would be a wise decision at this point to take Syria under our protection and control. Um, I, I would not, if I were in charge, I would not give the order to have American uh, American men and women walking the streets of, as I said yesterday, Damascus or Aleppo or any of these cities or towns trying to provide security for the Syrian people. Not because I'm cold-hearted, not because I don't know what it is for the Syrians and before them in my interactions with them with the Iraqis to be terrorized and live through all of this, but because uh, it can't always be our fight. And unless there's a U.S. national security objective at play, I am I, I would not be uh, comfortable telling somebody from this country to go risk their life over there um, without a clear sense of the objective and what the strategic what the what the strategic decision making is based on so that's my sense of where we are on syria um curious to know what you think about this because right now we still don't really know where trump stands on foreign intervention and uh military interactions and uh, military action against tyrannical mid-east regimes he said things that made him sound the past a bit more like Rand paul a bit more of a libertarian side um but Now we're hearing something else, and I wonder, um, I wonder what the approach will turn out to be. All right, lines are open, 844-900-BUCK, 844-900-2825. Michael in in New York. What's up, Michael? Oh, yeah. Hi, Buck. How are you doing? Good. How are you? Good, good. Yeah, I talked to you before. I don't know if you remember me or not. Of course. I remember all of my callers very fondly. <laughs> oh, too funny. Yeah, no, you're you're just saying about the Syria stuff and what, what we thought Trump would do. And uh, 
he's going to do something. He he can't let that go, you know. So you think he'll take some action? Yeah, I mean, he might. I, I don't think there'll be a major change in policy. He may bomb some stuff, but bombing anything that has to do with the Assad regime that would be that would be a big change in policy because uh, we have not gone after Assad. That has not been a part of the game plan because I think we realize that you are kicking a hornet's nest with that. Yeah, but you know what? He's it's going to have to happen because, like you even said, how you know. It, how long ago it should have been taken care of and they didn't. And then all these little kids wouldn't have died and stuff. And they're, they're going to have to do something. They're just going to have to. Uh, they may do something. Stuff. I don't I don't know what it will be just yet, but I would have to wonder. I was, in I was in Russia. And if, you know, if Russia wants to be, you know, it's just going to have to come to that in the world. because. All right. Thanks. Thanks for calling in. Sam in North Carolina, WPTI. Hey, how you doing? I'm all right. How are you? Great, great. Enjoy your show every night. I really appreciate what you do for our country, uh, your service, and what you do on the air. Thank you very much. I appreciate uh, that. You're welcome. I just had a few quick comments. Uh, I totally agree with everything you're saying about Syria and how we need to be extremely careful about committing uh, ground troops. And, uh, you know, I think that this... Sam, you know what? We uh, actually have about 10 seconds here, so let me... We'll hold you through, and we'll, we'll bring your comment in on the other side of the break. Can you hold with us? Yeah, cool. Okay, great. All right, Sam, stay with us. We'll get to you on the other side, guys. We'll finish up our Syria discussion and move on to other news of the day, including the latest on Susan Rice, North Korea, and more. He spreads freedom. Because freedom's not going to spread itself. Buck Sexton is back. Looks like the media did have to talk about the Susan Rice story after all. We'll get into that and also all of the latest on Trump and the meeting with Chinese Premier Xi Jinping, uh, the bellicose and troubling actions out of North Korea, Bannon getting moved off the NSC. I don't see that as quite as big a story as a lot of other people do, but uh, we'll We'll get to that and other things. But first, I, I held the caller through. Sam in North Carolina on WPTI. I want to let you have your say, sir. Thanks for staying with us. Hey, no problem. I appreciate you. Uh, let me uh, let me talk. Uh, I had a couple quick things. Um, first of all, I think this, this statement that we have been doing nation building for years is a misnomer. We've actually been nation destroying, number one. Uh, our, what we've done in the Middle East to destabilize that area is what is caused uh, all, of, all of the trouble that we have now. Well, Sam, I, I, uh, this, the, the Middle East hasn't been stable ever, really. So to talk about destabilization uh, is, I mean, if we're going to get into misnomers, I'm, I'm not sure I could uh, I could agree with that characterization. Uh, and in the case of Afghanistan, I mean, the country was already broken by the time we got there, and Iraq was operating as a as a prison state and concentration camp that was invading neighbors and you know that there were let, let, let's not act like we decided to upend things in switzerland just because I, I agree with you i mean i know he was a, a terrible leader uh i think we could have done things a little better let me ask you a question have you ever heard of the uh, uh in prophecy about the 12 kings that, that have to fall before the antichrist takes the seat i'm sorry that the 12 kings yeah, there's, there's 12 kings that has to fall before the Antichrist takes the seat. No, uh, I, I, I can't say I know. I can't say I know about this. Sorry. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. Uh, uh, you know, Saddam was one of them. Uh, Gaddafi was one of them. Uh, the 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 leader of Egypt was one of them. 
And, you know, now we're going after Assad. And, you know, who's next? The king of Jordan, the king of uh, Saudi Arabia. But it, it's a very interesting topic. Ah, well, any, anything where anything where people get to think about the uh, end of times, I think, gets their attention. But I don't, I don't know anything about any 12 kings. But thank you for calling in, Sam, on of WPTI. Good to have you. Okay, so on to some other uh, national security and foreign policy issues that are getting some attention here in the news cycle. First of all, uh, so Steve Bannon has stepped down, well, has been asked, I'm sure, to step down as a principal on the National Security Council. I don't really understand why this is of such great interest, except for the fact that Bannon is... I think it is fair to say, other than Trump himself, the single most hated by the left member of this administration. I I think that and in some ways they might hate Bannon even more. I don't know Steve Bannon, never met him, never interacted with him at all. I knew he ran Breitbart and I was friends with a number of his employees when he was running Breitbart. Uh, But I know the left hates him based on what they write about him. and, And this is no surprise to him at all. Um it is one thing to be a policy wonk who is running uh, a media empire or running websites and radio and other things. Uh, but real national security expertise is something that you're going to need if you are at the at the top level of the National Security Council. And so I think Bannon no longer being at that level makes sense. I've I've heard these stories that he was there to keep an eye on General Flynn. I, I don't know. Um, the people that are making the decisions about that are very few, and I'm sure that even those with pretty good access to that level of decision maker in the Trump administration is not necessarily getting the full the the whole truth and nothing but the truth on those kinds of personnel decisions. So so I don't know. Um, But I do know that Bannon is not somebody who should have been at the principal level of the National Security Council uh, based on expertise and background. That's that's not where uh, that's not where he would be a fit. I wonder if General McMaster, who is uh, considered a scholar general and has a tremendous reputation in military and intelligence circles, that taking the helm as national security advisor and therefore also corralling and dealing with on a daily basis the National Security Council. Uh, if that led to this, uh, yeah, I think I think that it did. But what's fascinating to me is that the criticisms that are leveled against the Trump administration, well, first of all, you, you got to admit that on the one hand, you're told he's a fascist, he's going to become like Hitler, right? That's what much of the media was was been saying, uh, has been saying for months now. And yet, a judge disagrees with him in Hawaii and his recourse is to go back to the courts and to wait. And in the meantime, the judge overturns his executive order. Uh, the health care bill doesn't look like it has the votes. And so they pull the health care bill. And they're going to move on to something else. All of the checks and balances that we were warned Donald Trump will be uh, destroying in short order have been checking and balancing the executive branch. I think in, in some cases, uh, unconstitutionally so, but they're at least there. There are checks and balances there. This is not a runaway presidency with executive orders and executive action that supersedes anything in anyone's imagination. That's all that hyperbole you've been hearing was, well, I think it wasn't even made in good faith. It was part of an effort to create an atmosphere of hysteria where anything anti-Trump would be viewed as good. Anything pro-Trump would be viewed as bad. And that's 
currently the circumstance in which we find ourselves in this country. Uh, but now that there are some, uh, there's some tinkering, there's some reassessment, there's some stepping back and looking at things like who should be in the principles committee of the, uh, who should be at the principles level of the National Security Council. Uh, this should be evidence, I would think, of Trump operating as a commander in chief who is learning as he goes along, as anybody who hasn't been president before certainly would. Uh, I, I wonder how some of the other appointments that he's made will play out going forward. I have my questions to be sure. But on Bannon, just going back to a role as political advisor and not being specifically involved in national security matters at the NSC, which is really a collaboration and a collection of individuals with deep expertise. That's what it's supposed to be, at least, and generally is. Uh, you know, people that are working on the Mideast or Africa or you, you name your region or your functional issue, they've been doing this for decades. Right? The, the NSC is supposed to be the intellectual powerhouse of any administration when it comes to national security. And if you're going to have people that are calling the shots in that body specifically, they really need to have the respect and the buy-in of the rank and file and uh, people in the NSC. There's, the NSC is much bigger than people realize, um, but it's still something that functions much like the rest of government in, in a somewhat insular and, and tribal fashion at times. It's There's a lot of, you know, we're the NSC and there's other people doing other stuff, but we're the, we're the real... We're the real brain center of this uh, national security operation. But Bannon stepping down should be a cause for, uh, I would think, some degree of, okay, you know, the Trump administration is making some some intelligent shifts. This isn't huge. He's not fired. He's not going away or anything, but he's not going to be operating at this NSC level. But instead, what you see, we told you so. Bannon's so bad. Bannon's doing all this uh, terrible, well... They they say that Bannon is a uh, white nationalist. Some of these media, or that you know, Breitbart is a wh- white nationalist website, and there's a lot of s- smears that are out there. Mike Pence, by the way, earlier today, addressed this. Uh, pl- so it's not a demotion for Steve Bannon. Well, not not for Steve, not for Tom. These are very highly valued members of this administration are going to continue to play important policy roles. But I think with uh, H.R. McMaster's addition as our national security advisor, a man of extraordinary background in the military, uh, this is just a natural evolution to okay. to ensure the National Security Council is is uh, is organized in a way that 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 best serves the president. That is the function of the National Security Council, by the way. Uh, I have spent some time at the NSC. I'm familiar with what they do. Uh, The National Security Council is there to advise the president, obviously on national security matters, uh, but it it is functionally an appendage of the White House, right? It's it's there to help the decision makers in the White House by bringing them the best information and analysis and counsel and advice and wisdom they possibly can. So it's Think of it like the president's personal think tank. That's largely what the NSC is. Now, it has some more functional roles than that or some more action-oriented roles. Uh, but it is mostly advisory, and it's like a think tank, and that's why they bring in uh, people who are academics as well as those with government or uh, government and military service. So they're changing around the NSC a little bit. It's not some huge deal, but, oh, Bannon, you see what's going on with Bannon? 
uh, he is a figure that looms very large in the minds of the terrified and hysterical left. So I do not think, uh, I do not think that this harkens uh, for, or, or rather, this this is a harbinger of anything in, that we should be concerned about. I think this is good. So the, the president and his top advisory circles are evolving, and they're making some decisions. Uh, there should be a, applause here for what the president has done. I'm not saying it's some great, huge victory or anything. I don't even think it's that big a deal. Quite honestly, I was surprised that so many people in the media were spending so much time, and I'm done with it after this. Okay, so he's not going to be on the National Security Council. Oh, it was such a controversy when they were initially reporting on it, though. Oh, Steve Bannon. Oh, because they hate Breitbart so much. Um, so, yeah, McMaster's going to run things good. Smart guy knows what he's doing. Now we have to see what their response on Syria is. But bef- but uh, we've, we've talked about Syria. I, I want to give you my sense of where we are on Ambassador... I'm sorry. Uh, well, I guess she was U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations, right? Um, but where we are on National Security Advisor, former National Security Advisor Susan Rice, the latest on that. Uh, by the way, as a heads up for what's coming later on in the show, we'll talk about uh, Trump and China and North Korea. We'll also get into... Uh, a that that professor that I mentioned from Canada who was shouted down as now the progressives like to do in many cases where they just don't want to hear something that bothers them. He was also the one who was told by that student, if you remember last week, that they wanted to hear his thoughts on free speech, but not on the topic that he was talking about. And she said that without irony. These are people. These are college students. Their whole job is to just read books and and try to learn stuff and and know some stuff. And they uh, miss things that I, I don't know what the purpose of college is. If, if people are just going to show up and believe that they never get to hear ideas that they don't like. Uh, it's not even just about hate speech. It's now hate speech is tantamount to violence and therefore violence can be used in opposition to hate speech, which isn't really hate speech. It's just speech that they don't like. But we'll have that professor, uh, hopefully, uh, we're assuming we'll have him join us in just a little bit. And, uh, also, you, if you would like to join, by all means, 844-900-2825. Uh, we've talked about the movement of Bannon from the NSC to just a political advisor, senior advisor role. A lot about Syria. Still want to hear your thoughts on Syria. Uh, do you think we should go after Assad? You, you, you think we should make moves in that direction? Maybe take limited military action against the Assad regime as a punitive measure for what they did? Uh, against the civilians in Syria. Keep in mind, this has been going on for a long time, and, well, you've heard my thoughts on that one. Is this for real about Rick Perry? Can somebody, can we confirm this? Is this true? I was uh, I was just talking about, oh, gosh, the uh, the trials and tribulations of live radio. I, I was just talking before about the ex- expertise needed for the National Security Council and uh, how McMaster is going to be running the show, and they've brought in some very good people, and Bannon's going to do more political stuff. But I, I see this. Is this real about Rick Perry? Do we know that we got multiple reports here that Rick Perry is somehow going to be involved in National Security making or National Security Council's decision-making process? You guys, come on. Come on. This is Rick Perry of Dancing with the Stars fame, uh, as well as being a former popular governor of the state of Texas, um, on the National Security Council? 
Rick Perry is a, is a nice man and a, and a good American and a patriot, and I like the guy. I don't know him, but I just from what I know of him, I like him. But on the NSC, uh, no, I do not think that is, I do not think that is a good move. You, you will notice, by the way, there'll be some of us who will just tell you what we really think about decisions made by the Trump administration and others who will take quite a while before they break away because there's been such a bifurcation between the pro-Trump and anti-Trump crowds that has happened that some just want to stay in the safe warm embrace of oh everything trump does is brilliant and good and he's amazing i take trump over hillary a thousand times uh you know and and over again but not everything trump does is great not everything trump does is going to be smart and where he's good i'll say it where he's not i'll say the same and i hope you will too speaking of which let's take some of your calls chris in Arizona, K-O-Y. Good to have you. Hi, how are you, Buck? I'm good, thank you. Um, I just want to let you know that um, I didn't know who you were, and I had listened to your predecessor before, and I thought I'd give you a chance. And so far, you're doing okay. Okay, I'll take it. Thanks. Good luck to you. I just want to make a point. Um, I was somebody who voted for Trump and got a lot of flack around me because not everybody that is close to me did appreciate his uh, voice, but right now we're being tested. We're being tested really, really hard from all areas, and I'm really hoping that he takes that stance and puts his money where his mouth is and does what he said he will do, because if he doesn't do something strong right now, we're in a lot of trouble. What would that, what would, something strong like what? What would be strong? I, I don't know. Firing missiles off I, at Assad, I, telling, I mean, North Korea, you don't want to get into a game of chicken with, with North Korea. That's a scary, scary situation, not just because of the nukes, but also just because of the artillery range of uh, you know North Korea to South Korea. So that's, that's a big issue. But uh, all right, Chris, well, you want strong action. We'll see what Trump does. I'm guessing um, there will be almost nothing in response to what we've seen in Syria. That's my, that's my, uh, my, Analysis at this point. We'll see if that changes. Uh, John in Nevada on the iHeart app. What's up, John? Hey, I was in the Middle East uh, stationed there for a long time in the 70s, and it really hasn't changed much. And we had come to the conclusion the best you can hope for is a benevolent dictator or king. You'll never have democracy because of Sharia law. It doesn't allow it. And what they're trying to, and for us going into Syria, now the Assad regime may be, in my, in my opinion, and I am an expert, but I am dated, uh, is probably the best you can hope for. If we had backed Assad in the beginning, a million people would be alive. If uh, we had backed Assad, that's, then, we're com- then we are complicit with uh, a tyrant. But, hey, we've, we've backed some pretty nasty people before. It wouldn't be the first time. Tyrants, but he's, a, he's more of a benevolent tyrant. When all the Christians were kicked out of Iraq, where did they go? They went to Syria, to Assad, and they've been killed everywhere else. The, uh, I, I worked with the various Christian churches that were in the Muslim lands at the time, back in the 70s, and it was a vibrant, there were more than 10 million, I, oh, more than 10 million Christians at that time. Now it's, it's gone down to some countries virtually zero. Well, the Christian extermination that has occurred in Iraq is one of the most underreported stories of the last decade. It's, they're just they're just gone. I mean, they've just been driven out. Uh, 
mostly under threat of violence because of what's happened in that country. And uh, it, it barely gets a news mention in the past. I'm thinking of some specific incidents that happened there with you know church, churches bombed or, or burned to the ground, uh, members of the clergy murdered. It's just it somehow gets swept under the rug that there has been an anti-Christian anti-Christian genocide going on in Iraq for quite a while now. So it, it's, it is very troubling, and I don't think it gets nearly enough uh, media coverage. There, there were concerns, I know, among some journalists for a while, think about this for a second, John, that they didn't want to single out Christians and their persecution because it would seem like the crusader narrative of us picking our favorites would be true. I'm like, but they are being singled out and, and, and murdered and exterminated more so than the average Iraqi. They're like, oh no, Iraq is suffering so much. We can't pick favorites among the suffering. This I, I heard, I've heard journalists talk about this, so it, it's astonishing. Anyway, that's the reality of it. But John, thanks for calling in on the uh, iHeart app. Good to have you. Uh, 844-900-2825. We're going to talk some politics here. Let's switch it up. Going to loosen it up and lighten it up a little bit, especially going into the third hour. Although eventually we'll talk about North Korea, which is super intense. But that's the end of the show. So hang out with me for a while. We'll get into some other stuff. And uh, I'll be right back. Buck Sexton with America Now. We are gold. The Freedom Hut is fired up as Team Buck assembles shoulder to shoulder, shields high. Call in 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. Seen a lot of headlines that suggest that something is supposed to be done by the Congress, by this administration in response to the Syrian government's usage of chemical weapons. I, I suppose it's alleged at this point, although I don't know who else would have used it, uh, usage of chemical weapons against civilians. There are some who get into this whole conspiracy. I mean, the Russians pretend that maybe it was the rebels as a false flag against the Syrian government. Um, the Russians, uh, the Russian government continues to debase itself, if that's even possible. Uh, but Senator Cotton says that Assad is, I'm just saying this, uh, Assad is... In power is not an option. Uh, and also, Nikki Haley says they will take action against Syria, by which I assume she means the Syrian regime. So we will have to see. Um, I am doubtful that we'll take a lot of action against ISIS, sure, but not the Syrian regime. But I said we'd move on to politics, and I want to do that and to help us with that transition. We have Sarah Westwood on the line. She is the White House correspondent. For the Washington Examiner, Sarah, thank you for calling in. Thanks for having me. Uh, first, I mean, I, I do want to ask, what is the tone you are hearing uh, from folks in and around the White House? Uh, obviously, it's solemn and, and grave and very serious in response to what happened in Syria. But do, do you get the sense that there really is a, a consensus about action in response to this? Or do you think this may uh, pass away, uh, pass out of sight with the news cycle? Well, action would mark a departure from what President Trump ran on and what the administration was putting out when Trump first came into office. I mean, keep in mind that President Trump was critical of U.S. entanglements in the Middle East. He said that it's not going to be America's job to go in and remove dictators anymore. And Syria was an example of where the administration had said just weeks earlier that they thought it was unrealistic to expect regime change to be an option in Syria. Now that this chemical attack has happened, it's the first real test of the foreign policy vision that Trump had laid out. 
And it seems like President Trump is being pushed to go the other way, to take action in Syria. Like you mentioned, we're hearing from U.S. Ambassador to the U.N., Nikki Haley, that action is on the table today in the Rose Garden. President Trump said that uh, he was really disturbed by what he saw, that it, that it changed him and that he was uh, considering taking action. So this is actually marking a shift away from uh, what the Trump administration has previously said they were going to do. I, I don't think, per, I, I just don't see a change, a major change in policy. Getting rid of the Assad regime brings a tremendous set of risks and, and challenges for any administration. It might have been easier some years ago. I think that Trump will look at the options and say, well, we're not going to do that. But that's, that is certainly subject to, uh, well, we'll see what happens. But let's get on to politics here for a second. Uh, domestic politics, that is. The, the White House was saying, or, or I saw last night, that they had some back and forth over a, a new effort at an Obamacare replacement bill. Uh, now I'm hearing maybe not so much. Where does that stand? Where where are we on health care with this GOP Congress and uh, the Trump White House? So they are up and down in the Trump administration on the House. It's really hard to where they stand at any given moment, because when the talks first collapsed on March 24th, when Speaker Ryan pulled the bill, both Trump and Speaker Ryan said, we're not going to touch this until Obamacare collapses. We're going to move on to tax reform. But then behind the scenes, we had some movement. We had the talk starting up quietly between members of the House Freedom Caucus, senior members of the Trump administration. And starting Tuesday morning, it was looking more and more like we might see a text of the bill before members of Congress leave for their two-week Easter recess, which starts on Friday. Uh, but then late last night, uh, Vice President Pence was on the Hill. He was meeting with both moderate members and conservative members. They were trying to get a deal together. And it seems like uh, the conservative members of the House were, again, dissatisfied with what was put forward because it went it did not go nearly as far as what they thought the Trump administration was promising them this time around. So, again, the health care talks seem to be at a standstill. There's some rumblings. I think right now Speaker Ryan and uh, Majority Leader Kevin McCarthy are actually at the White House. But it doesn't seem likely that they're going to get a bill before they leave Washington on Friday. Do you have any sense? Have you heard of what some of the concessions uh, where some of the efforts were to get this thing to a place where the Freedom Caucus and others might be willing to go forward with it, or is it still just too early to even know? Well, the, the Freedom Caucus members were upset that all of the Title I insurance regulations were left intact by the original Republican bill. And so they had negotiated down to wanting just two of those insurance regulations changed. One was the essential health care benefits that featured prominently in the first set of talks, meaning that every single insurance plan doesn't have to cover every single uh, condition. If you're a man, you won't have to buy a plan that also covers maternity leave under the new Republican plan. And the second thing they wanted to change was community ratings. This is the regulation that mandates that if an insurance company can't raise prices for sick people without also raising them for healthy people. So these two insurance regulations, that's what was on the table. And the deal that was taking shape yesterday that seemed to have fallen through would have allowed states to apply for waivers to exempt themselves from those regulations, but it would would not have been automatic cuts. But I think what was then presented to the House Freedom Caucus 
uh, it didn't allow those waivers to to be applied for and obtained as easily as they thought. And so it was essentially in their minds leaving those regulations intact. And so they didn't go for the second deal. Uh, they really need to come up with something better after this recess because uh, so far, not a lot to cheer about with this new GOP uh, Congress. By the way, what's the latest on the Gorsuch fight, uh, the, the nomination there? I know that Democrats have vowed the filibuster. Where are we? Can you give us an update on that? It looks like no matter what happens, uh, Gorsuch is going to be confirmed on Friday one way or another. Whether that means that Republicans are going to invoke the nuclear option, which is looking more and more likely, or whether it means Democrats are going to reach some kind of deal that would allow them to avoid a filibuster. But enough Democrats have said no, uh, no to Gorsuch that it, it looks more and more likely that Republicans are going to have to eliminate the filibuster for Supreme Court nominations because they're not going to be able to meet that 60-vote threshold for closure to get uh, to advance course. So, so you're not hearing any rumblings about a last-minute deal with the Democrats in the Senate to try to avoid that? Because strategically, I've thought, and, and others who have come on the show, it just doesn't make sense for the Democrats to force it this time. It doesn't make sense. I mean, because this is Judge Neil Gorsuch is more or less a consensus pick. He's... Uh, centrist. He's a conservative, but he's a constitutionalist. He's someone that under any other Republican administration would have passed with flying colors through this process. But because it's the Trump administration, Democrats feel obligated to say no. Uh, But the base, the Democratic base is so riled up that I think Democrats feel like they have to obstruct President Trump at any cost. And they might regret this down the road uh, if there's another vacancy during Trump's presidency. And that's that's a definite possibility. Just like they regretted uh, nuking the filibuster for other appointments. Look at how easily President Trump was able to install his cabinet despite Democratic opposition. That was because of what uh, Harry Reid did with the nuclear option. Uh, The same situation is repeating itself with the Supreme Court nomination. And uh, on to Susan Rice. Uh, Yesterday, obviously, this was... Uh, dominating the headlines everywhere, a lot of back and forth between journalists and others on social media about this, and there were calls for her to testify. Is, is Are those calls getting louder, or are we going to see Susan Rice call before the House or the Senate Intelligence Committee? It's entirely possible. I mean, even ranking member Schiff on the House Intelligence Committee, the top Democrat, said it's a possibility, and I think that Democrats understand that if they want to call a litany of uh, Trump associates before the committee, they're going to have to allow some of the Republican requested witnesses to come forward. So if Republicans do request Susan Rice, I don't see how Democrats on the committee could object to that. And particularly, uh, we're learning more and more about how these unmaskings potentially deviated from the procedure that usually accompanies unmasking the identity of Americans swept up in incidental collection. So there's a whole lot at play here, but I think uh, Democrats, if they're going to continue to argue that nothing improper took place here, then they have no choice but to invite Susan Rice forward to say that in front of the committee. Sarah Westwood is White House correspondent for The Washington Examiner. You can read her latest on WashingtonExaminer.com. Sarah, thanks so much for giving us a ring. Thank you. Uh, on the Susan Rice issue, by the way, if I may for a moment here, um, it would seem to me that if you were to tally up the evidence for some kind of foul play within the government, 
against the Trump administration. And then on the other side, tally up the Trump was working with Russia to, quote, hack the election, which I, I have to commend, by the way, the Ann Coulter piece today, that she, the piece she wrote is a very, a very Ann, uh, Ann-like uh, screed in the best way against this notion that this was something that would be easy for Russia to do, right? that, that this is, I mean, I said this, I was on Andrew Wilkow, who's a, who's a, a good friend of mine and, and a great guy. I was on his radio show on Sirius XM earlier today. I said, you know, the, we're talking about elections where people are spending billions of dollars in this country to steer the outcome one way or the other. The big plan here was to get into the DNC's emails to show the DNC was unfair to Bernie. We all knew the DNC was unfair to Bernie. Anybody who was paying attention, remember all the super delegates? They kept showing, well, the race is getting closer, and Bernie's like, you know, we're going to have a political revolution, and we're going to take over in this country, and it's going to be it's going to be amazing, free health care, free college, booyah, baby. I mean, the whole thing, right? It was all going to work. And then you'd see Bernie was getting closer, and the, but the super delegates who just get to decide, they were all for Hillary pretty much. Well, what is that all about? What's the purpose of having these primaries and caucuses if the superdelegates are all going to go for Hillary? Uh, The system was all so skewed towards Hillary because that's where the Democrat establishment had made its bed. That's what the bet was going to be. And it's not surprising. at all. One of my favorite uh, pastimes, actually, over at CNN when I was uh, a commentator over there, was they occasionally they let me talk during Demo- after a Democrat town hall, and I just sit there and be like, well, I mean, Bernie at least says what he thinks and is authentic. Hillary's positions are for sale and change all the time, and she is just utterly without any uh, ethical compass or ideology based in principle. Uh, you know, Bernie's ideology would destroy this country economically and otherwise, but at least it's an ideology. I mean, say what you will about Bernie Sanders socialism, at least it's an ideology. Uh, Hillary is just the classic left-wing pseudo-populist who's actually a cronyist in the pockets of all of the different special interests that combine together to be the Democratic Party. Uh, But this was not new. And that's that's how you're going to win the election by showing that that the DNC was unfair to Bernie. R- really? Does anyone was there anything else? Did I miss something? What was in the Podesta and DNC emails that was such a such a game changer that there was stuff? I, I mean, find me one Democrat who's uh, or sorry, find me one voter who was like, well, I was going to vote for Hillary. But ever since I saw that Podesta email, you know, then I really it's just nonsense. But back to the original premise, if you were to look at one side, look at the other, the Susan Rice explanation yesterday just doesn't really add up. And that all of a sudden we're being told, oh, well, it's not illegal uh, what she did. Uh, Well, a few days ago it was she didn't know anything and nothing had been done. Now it's that it's not illegal. That's a change. That's a change that's worth paying some attention to and we might talk a little more about the susan rice situation in the next hour but uh i want to hit a break here and when we come back pepsi gate if that's a thing i don't know if that's a thing we'll make it a thing we'll talk about this yeah i know you're like pepsi buck really i, I don't i don't drink soda i'll have you know occasionally ginger ale if i feel like really stretching my legs and being a wild man but uh yeah pepsi we'll talk about this commercial because it has to do with social justice warriors and there, there's don't worry it'll matter i'll make it matter Whoa! 
what you're hearing right now is from the now infamous Pepsi ad that was pulled with uh, Kendall Jenner starring in it. And it shows it shows that uh, there's a uh, some kind of a protest underway. But the protest is the, the protesters are of diverse backgrounds and they're holding up signs that say things like join the conversation. So it's just bland general activism. Not clear uh, who is, you know, it, it's just like protesters. And you've got Kendall Jenner, who stars in this ad, who is in the middle of like a modeling shoot in the ad. And then she sees a Pepsi or something and she hands a Pepsi to the police and like Pepsi is supposed to bring because the police are watching the protesters and Pepsi brings everyone together. It's a obviously they're trying to uh, appeal to the millennials, you know, which I'm just I've just aged out of being a millennial now. But uh, they're trying to appeal to the millennials, you know, also known as young people uh, with this ad. And they want all these. 20s, 20 and early 30 somethings that believe that protest movements and all this progressive hashtag activism is somehow tied to Pepsi drinking, right? I mean, you know, basically the cool the cool kids drink Pepsi. I, I saw this ad. I thought to myself because there's so I mean, it's if you go on social media, all oh, the Pepsi ad. It's so true. Uh, the New York Times has a piece here. Pepsi pulls ad accused of trivializing Black Lives Matter. Nowhere in this ad was there any mention of Black Lives Matter. Uh, was there any imagery that one would necessarily associate with Black Lives Matter? But in the minds of progressive activists, Black Lives Matter is the most potent protest movement that they currently have underway. And so they immediately associate this with that. And it trivializes it, even though the ad, by the way, was very, like, bring everyone together. It was, as like I said, very diverse, harmless, playing some groovy tunes. I, 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 I kind of liked it. I thought it was fine. It was frivolous, but it's a soft drink ad, everybody. Who cares? Of course it's frivolous. It's for Pepsi, the second best version of Cola that is mass produced. So just kidding. If Pepsi wants to, you know. I don't know, which, whichever whichever one wants to advertise in the show. I'm kidding, I'm kidding. I don't want to be like Mnuchin where I have to apologize for, you know, pushing one sponsor or another like that. Um, I'm not in government, so I don't think the same ethics rules apply. Nonetheless, what you see here is what I've told you before. When I've said that the left has killed comedy, they are utterly humorless about things. And they also, and this is very important, there there is a message from the outrage at this bland and just largely saccharine who cares Pepsi ad. And that is that the left is largely, when you're talking about the progressive activists out there, they are joyless. They are humorless. And it is not about bringing people together. It is not about inspiring people to be happier and be better. It's about anger. It's about virtue signaling and separating certain groups from a perceived enemy. It's very Alinskyite. Remember, Alinsky in Rules for Radicals, once you organize people around something as commonly agreed upon as pollution, then an organized people is on the move. From there, it's a short and natural step to political pollution to Pentagon pollution. End of quote. Just about getting people riled up and fired up and then using them for your own purposes. And Pepsi, by being all nice and happy and full of hugs ran afoul of the social justice warriors. 
He's an ex-CIA officer who knows how to outsmart the enemies of liberty. But I do have a very particular set of skills. Buck Sexton with America Now. Team, your mission, should you choose to accept it, call the Freedom Hunt Operations Center, 888-900-BUCK. Make contact. Unless you're under hostile surveillance. 888-900-2825. All right, team, we're joined now by Dr. Jordan Peterson. He's a professor of psychology at the University of Toronto and a clinical psychologist. He has an upcoming speech at Harvard, Mask of Compassion, Postmodernism and Neo-Marxism in Modern Times. Dr. Peterson, thank you for calling in. Thank you. Yes, thank you for having me. So please give us a little bit of the backstory here. I I saw you up at a university in Canada trying to give a speech, and you were not shouted down, but that doesn't even really cover it. You had people blowing air horns in your face, uh, throwing glitter at you, screaming over you. What was going on there, and what were you there to talk about? Well, I was there to talk about the same sorts of things that I'm going to be talking about at Harvard, about free speech, for example, and its necessity. And, uh, well, as you know, or, or may, may not know, the issue of free speech has become divisive on campuses What with the rise of, I would say, both political, like postmodernism and, and its neo-Marxist foundations. Um, but People, what what about the, the specific issue of pronoun usage and Canadian law? I'm very familiar with the, the campus political correctness battles, and as a college Republican from over a decade ago now, I, I, I lived to some of this stuff. Uh, but tell me about the, the pronoun transgender law and what's going on in Canada, and that was part of your discussion, that was part of what came up, I know, from your discussion. Yeah, well, I made some videos back in September criticizing two things. Criticizing one, criticizing Canada's move to make compelled speech a feature of our legal system, requiring that people use the pronouns of the target's choice. And I don't agree that that's something that the government should be regulating. I think that the incursion of the government into the regulation of speech content is a terrible thing. And the fact that it happens to be about transgenderism to me, is more of a side issue than anything else, just where the issue happens to have emerged. And I was also objecting to the University of Toronto Human Resources Department decision to make unconscious bias retraining, so-called, mandatory for their human resources staff. And that caused a tremendous amount of political controversy in Canada, which even months later still hasn't completely faded away. Let me take these in reverse order for a second. What is unconscious bias training? Well, the hypothesis is is that it's part of this brand new move across institutions at multiple levels to push the idea of equity, which is now termed equality of outcome rather than equality of opportunity. And this is coming everyone's way very rapidly, so it's definitely worth noting. So the idea is that if the demographic uh, makeup of a given organization at every level of the organization doesn't precisely match the demographic makeup of the surrounding community, so that means, say, 50% women, 50% men, uh, 4% black, say, and 4% black, etc., then the institution is to be deemed corrupt and everyone in it racist, and then to be both measured for that and then subject to retraining of their hypothetical unconscious biases. 
And what happens so, if you don't, under Canadian law, if you don't use the proper pronoun? Can you get fined? Do they just send you a strongly worded letter? What happens? Well, what happened to me was merely because I said that I wouldn't do it. And so that isn't even the same as not doing it, by the way, just because I said I wouldn't do it. The university sent me two letters suggesting, A, that I was in violation of university policy, and B, that I was likely in violation of the relevant Ontario Human Rights Commission's policies, which which are the policies that this new legislation that I was opposing will be interpreted within. Can that have civil penalties, though? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely, it can have civil pen- penalties. The Ontario Human Rights Commission, which is an appallingly... Um, I would say kangaroo, it's, an, it's a kangaroo court entity, can bring you in front of it um, and fine you, uh, uh, fine you certainly a punitive amount of money, not to mention the amount of money that you have to spend on your legal defense. And then if you're unable or unwilling to pay that, then you're punted into the normal court system where they can find, find you in contempt and jail you. So, yeah, they, the penalties are non, non-trivial. Yeah, so they could, they could lock you up and just, they could lock you up for improper pronoun usage this is in canada everybody you know this this, this isn't in like uh tajikistan or something this is in canada and yeah, uh, by it, the way it, i'm sorry they call that well they call that misgendering and it's a form of harassment or or abuse right but i yeah. wanted to also i wanted to point out that my understanding based on what i know of how the social justice movement likes to enforce their mandates it's not just that you would have to call say a man who is transgendered to female, which is not a scientific process that really exists. But nonetheless, it's not just you'd have to call him her. But my understanding is if somebody wants to be called Z, X, E, or they, or whatever, then you'd have to do that because that's... That's exactly right. And there's there's a myriad of these new pronouns coming up. And and there's absolutely no guidelines on, on what the restrictions is on their enforced use. Now, I think to some degree this took the lawmakers by surprise because I don't believe when they originally introduced these these policies that they knew that there would be an explosion of gender identities and an explosion of the of the corollary pronouns that are supposed to be applied. But it doesn't matter because just like in New York State, the same thing applies in New York State, by the way, if you refuse to use the proper gendered pronouns, including these these uh constructed pronouns that no one uses, if you refuse to use those as a business owner in New York State, you can be fined $250,000. I didn't even know that. I live in New York oh, yeah. State. Not, no, no, it's not only Canada. This And, and it's certainly not only Canada. There, there's, this sort of legislation is popping up all over the Western world. But I, my fundamental objection was that the government was regulating the content of speech for the first time in well, in English common law history, certainly in Can- Canadian history, there's no excuse for it. I was taken aback recently just being at a doctor's office here in New York City and on the form where it usually says male, female. And this is in a, in a medical doctor's office. I was getting an, an annual checkup. Uh, it said male, female or, or preferred gender identity. And, right, right. and this, this is in a medical doctor's office, everybody. You know, this is like there's this isn't about being polite. This is supposed to be, you know, based on the on the XX or XY chromosome. But but I digress. I, I wanted to wanted you to have everyone. Uh, I wanted you to tell everybody about what happened when you tried to give this speech. And what are some of the contentions uh, of the student body that thought that they're allowed to, in fact, morally compelled to literally shout you down and really, I saw a video professor engage in threatening and completely boorish and insane behavior. 
Well, I mean, one of the things that it's necessary for, for perhaps for your listeners to understand is that there are a number of disciplines now in universities, and I would say headed by women's studies and, 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 and the associated disciplines that have surrounded women's studies, that do nothing but train activists. And so as far as I'm concerned, we're publicly funding a fifth column in our society, and we've funded now the development of millions of these activists, and their goal, their stated goal, and this is what the program state forthrightly on their websites, it's not hidden information, their goal is to take down the patriarchy. And apart from the fact that that's appallingly, um, what would you call it, appallingly slogan-dominated phraseology, it's a veiled threat with regards to the structure of Western civilization itself, because these disciplines regard our culture as intrinsically oppressive and believe that every element of it has to be deconstructed and demolished. And that includes, includes things with that we consider very fundamental, like the, the necessity for free speech and the utility of dialogue and the existence, the very existence of differences between men and women, which they believe do not exist. And part of their, their uh, philosophical position is that no dialogue is helpful between groups that have different identities. And so there's no point listening to a professor who comes on campus who might share a view, who might have a viewpoint different than your own. All you're doing by allowing him or her to talk is to give them a platform for their, for their hateful attitudes. And so you're morally obligated to go and shut them down. I saw, I've seen a lot of these videos, Professor, on campuses yep. where students have acted in this way. But in, in your case, uh, it, was, it was very um, obvious that the students were completely brainwashed. <laughs> you had one student that I saw on the video who told you that you were invited to speak about free speech but not about the topic that you wanted to talk about, which had to do with uh, transgender pronoun oh, usage she, in the context. Yeah, she was an amazing person, that woman, because by the time I was, when, when she made those statements, I had already left the lecture hall and I was speaking outside in, in, a, in a somewhat secluded area. I was standing on yeah, a you were just on the street and she was telling you what you were and we're not, and with, with oh, complete seriousness, like a little so, petty totalitarian. Yeah, right, she was so narcissistic that it was almost incomprehensible. I looked at her and I thought, well, first of all, she's like 19-year-old, 20-year-old kid. And I thought, how, how in the world is your conceptual universe constituted so that you think that you have the right to tell me what I can say in front of all these other people? You know, I, I, it's, it's almost incomprehensible. I, I thought that was, that was, I thought it was a really, it was a fascinating distillation of the social justice mindset and the activist training that these campuses are doing because it was so both incomprehensible and contradictory. Professor, I, I want you to talk to the audience about postmodernism and neo-Marxism, which I know is the lecture you're going to be giving at Harvard soon. Can you stay with us through a break and talk to us on the other side? Do you have a few minutes? Sure, yeah. Oh, okay, great. Dr. Jordan Peterson, everybody, professor of psychology at University of Toronto. We're talking social justice warriors, postmodernism, neo-Marxism, and more. We'll be right back. All right, everybody, we're back with Professor Jordan Peterson from the University of Toronto. He's got a speech coming up at Harvard, Mask of Compassion, Postmodernism, and Neo-Marxism in Modern Times. Professor, thanks for staying with us. Uh, I wanted you to, to get into some of the ideological underpinnings of the social justice movement, namely postmodernism and neo-Marxism, which you tried to explain to some of the students when you were being shouted down at that university I talked about. But tell us, we're not going to shout you down. We want to hear about it. Well, post the postmodern idea is essentially that 
structures of value are prejudicial because they exclude. And it's true that structures of value exclude. I mean, the, the for example, if you value brain surgeons, then and you value competence in brain surgeons, then there's going to be a small number of people who are brain surgeons who are highly trained and a tremendous number of people who are excluded from that. And so the basic claim of postmodernism that value structures exclude is correct, but they take it farther and they make the case that the reason that value structures exist or, or, or hierarchies of competence or hierarchies of power, any of those, the reason they exist is to privilege the people who are within the hierarchy. And that's not the purpose of them. That's one of the side effects of their existence. And maybe it's the purpose of them if they become somewhat corrupt. But, but their, their first hypothesis is that there are structures of, of power that exist and that the reason they exist is to privilege the people that have the power and to... to and oppress. To, Oppression must be a part of this as well. Else. Yeah. Exactly, to oppress everyone else. Okay, and so... And, and then... Having said that, they also adopt the framework that they, the, there's no dialogue possible between groups that hold different positions of power, say the excluded and the, in, and the included, because the included people set the terms for the discussion, and even such things as dialogue are only ways that they further their grip on power. So not only for the postmodernists, not only is the world a landscape of warring groups, the, there's no possible dialogue between the groups. There's only power. And so that's basically, that's partly the philosophy of Michel Foucault and, and Jacques Derrida is the other major player in the area. They're both French intellectuals. And now the problem with postmodernism makes other claims too, like the fact that interpretations of the world are entirely arbitrary and only grounded in power. It's a similar sort of idea. But, and, but the, the problem with their perspective is that if every interpretation is equally valid then that leaves you with no direction for action and so they re they they revert to the marxism out of which postmodernism emerged and say well there is a dialectic of power and the proper ethic is to work on the side of the hypothetically oppressed now there's no real rationale for that from a postmodernist perspective because the postmodernists believe that any old position is as good as any other position but because human beings can't live without some impetus towards action, they default to this old style Marxism. And Marxism used to be the rich against the poor, you know, the bourgeoisie against the proletariat. But that didn't fly very well throughout the 20th century, Century, partly because the proletariat tended to get rich under capitalism, and the systems that were predicated on Marxism tended to become brutally poor and unbelievably totalitarian. And so by the time the late 60s came around, the early 70s, it, it was pretty clear to the Marxist types that classic Marxism wasn't going to fly. And so they just performed an intellectual sleight of hand and transformed bourgeoisie against proletariat into more the more generic oppressed versus op or oppressor versus oppressed. And that's sort of the basis of the of the. Um, identity politics that we see today. Right. So this is the under this is the underlying uh, the, the roots of the constant victimology that's uh, underneath or, or really in many ways energizing the social justice movements that aren't just campus based, although they may be are in their most pure, unadulterated and, and insane form on campus, but have seeped out into the broader culture and, and in fact have really seized 
some of the primary cultural institutions, certainly in this country, and I'm assuming up in Canada as well, Professor. No, definitely. Well, and you see it invading the corporate domain now, generally mostly under the guise of human resources, because the human resources professions have been invaded by social justice warriors, and they're starting to push these doctrines of of racism and unconscious bias and, and equity. It's a very, very dangerous, very, very dangerous doctrine. Now, I know that you, you had a, a grant that you think was, was pulled because of your stance on this. Is that fair to say? Well, it's hard not to, to make that assumption. I've been funded every single year. I've been a professor in Canada until this year. Now, the grants, my grant applications often cover multiple years, but one of the things that I had, had uh, uh, proposed to study was, or to continue to study was uh, the relationship between personality and political belief. And I've already looked at the relationship between personality and liberalism and conservatism, and we'd extended that out to an analysis of political correctness. And I, I've become a, a, a well-known, I would say, in Canada and to some degree in other places because of the stance that I've taken on free speech. And all of a sudden, my grant funding was not only was it not renewed. My grant application was giving it, given a very poor rating. Right, so you become more well known as an academic, and all of a sudden your 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 funds dry up. That's interesting. Yeah, and I have a very credible scientific reputation. There's lots of objective markers of scientific credibility, and using those objective markers, it places me easily in the top one percent of of practicing research scientists. So there's no reason for my grant applications not to be. Uh, my my grant application not to be funded. Have and social also, justice groups been targeting the university specifically because of your presence? Is that is that something that is a, a campaign that is underway? Has been underway? I would assume yes. Well, it, it had it had been underway at the University of Toronto. A, a lot of social justice types were very irritated at me because of my stance on on against compelled speech, and they organized a rally. Uh, a demonstration against my position and also about 200 of them signed a petition asking for me to be disciplined and also wrote the university and said that I was making the campus an unsafe space. Yeah. I don't want to put you in an unsafe space, professor, but I mean, these other professors that are signing things against you, are they just cowardly? Are they just worried about their jobs? Free speech is the heart of the academy. What is wrong with these people? They're not just cowardly. They're also dangerous. They're definitely cowardly, and, and they like to attack in mobs, but they're also extremely dangerous. They're far more dangerous than people think. And the fact that in the United States and in Canada and, and in the West in general, that, that the public has been funding these activist disciplines for the last 30 years has to stop. There's enough of them out there now so that they pose a credible threat to the structure of our society. And they're certainly motivated to pose that threat. They don't like the way that our society is, is constructed. For example, they're going after the idea that there are differences between men and women, like full, flat out. And it's a very, uh, there's no scientific credibility to their position whatsoever. Dr. Peterson, what you're speaking at Harvard when? On the 10th of April. 10th of April. All right. Well, we hope yep. you'll come back and tell us how that goes. Dr. Jordan Peterson, professor of psychology at the University of Toronto. Check out his work, and uh, if you can go see him at Harvard, please do. Professor, we appreciate you extending your time with us. Thanks so much for coming by. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for the invitation. Anytime. Uh, team phones are open, 844-900-2825. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Freedom Hut on an island of liberty where you're the party. 
and it's full of fellow Patriots. Buck Sexton kicks it off. The clock has run out on North Korean nuclear program. That's what the White House said. You've also got a very terse statement from Secretary of State Rex Tillerson. We've talked about North Korea enough is more or less what it said. Well, people are very concerned about this, and it comes all together right on the eve of a major sit-down between President Donald Trump and Xi Jinping, the premier of China. Uh, What can we expect from all this and what can be done about North Korea? Our friend Gordon Chang joins us now. He's the author of The Coming Collapse of China and Nuclear Showdown, North Korea Takes on the World. Gordon, great to have you back. Thank you so much, Buck. Uh, So the clock has now run out, is what the White House said, on the North Korean nuclear program. That seems very definitive. It seems like there must be some action that they will take because the clock has run out. But... What would that be? What can that be at this point? Is this bluster, or do you think there's a real change in policy coming from this administration? Well, actually, the statement was even more ominous than what you uh, repeated, because the rest of that line, Buck, is, and all options are on the table, which is code for the use of military force. Now, I don't think that we would do that, um, but nonetheless, um, there are... uh, uh, frustration in the administration. And if the clock has run out on North Korea, then it should have also run out or be close to running out on China, because these two countries have worked very closely. The Chinese not only provide economic support, diplomatic support, but also uh, the Chinese have been supplying uh, materials and components for North Korea's nuclear weapons program, as well as important equipment and perhaps even technology and plans for North Korea's missiles. So, for instance, the missiles that North Korea launched on August 24th and February 12th look an awful lot like China's JL-1 submarine-launched missile. Trump needs to start asking some questions when Xi Jinping arrives in Mar-a-Lago. What is the official Central Committee position uh, in Beijing on all things North Korea when they're talking to a U.S. interlocutor, when they're having a conversation with a U.S. Secretary of State, in this case, Tillerson, but, you know, before that, you know, Hillary, John Kerry and Hillary Clinton and, and going back before that, you know, Albright back in the 90s. And, of course, all the, the Bush administration secretaries of state, Condi Rice. Uh, what is their position on North Korea? Do they act? Do they put on a show of, oh, we totally agree with you, America. North Korea is terrible. Or are they kind of like, well, you know, we'll work on that. We'll get back to you. There's two themes in what they say. First of all, yes, we're as frustrated with the North Koreans as you are, Americans. But also, and I can sort of understand that, they probably actually do feel a certain amount of of angst. But the other thing that they say is that North Korea is primarily a U.S. problem. Um, We created the problem, and so therefore we should solve it. And and that just is ludicrous. You know, the Chinese uh, realize that the North Koreans are difficult to deal with, but they don't stop dealing with them. They continue to support them. And so we just got to understand that, yeah, we got a North Korea problem, but we really, really got a China problem. Now, when it comes to the options, you know, we say all options are on the table. And I, I assume, obviously, repeating that in a very public way from the White House is, is a reminder of, of of the fact that all options are on the table. But that has been at least uh, unstated policy, I would think, for White House is stretching back for for quite a while now. We have U.S. troops in South Korea. They're clearly there 
for a reason. And we're watching North Korea's nuclear program as well as other North Korean actions very closely and, and with great concern. If let's say for a moment, Gordon, that Xi Jinping and Donald Trump just get along famously and he figures, you know, I don't want to get on the wrong side of this guy. I'm willing to to to, to give a little to get a little here on the North Korea issue. Uh, what would some of the actions, it, what would positive Chinese action on North Korea, other than we're not going to give them missiles and, and nuclear help, right, <laughs> which well, that is, I assume, a part of this, what would some of the actions look like? I mean, h- how much could we reasonably expect from China in dealing with North Korea so that we don't have to sit around wondering when are they going to get nukes and put them on a long-range missile and maybe be crazy enough to use them? Well, I think the most important thing that would be um, help Chinese help would be just basically to cut off commerce with China. Ninety percent of North Korea's external commerce is with China. And so that's a money flow that supports the regime, permits it to build nukes and missiles, just gives it the flexibility to keep itself in power. So uh, essentially, it's going to be uh, an economic issue. And of course, as you point out, um, it should be also China cutting off the supply of uh, materials and components for their weapons program and also getting Chinese banks out of money laundering for North Korea. Now, I don't think any they, they, they might promise a lot of this stuff, um, but I don't think that they'll actually do it because Xi Jinping identifies the U.S. as his primary strategic adversary, which means he's not going to help us on what we see as a critical existential threat. But just so we're all clear listening uh, here to you, Gordon, if China wanted to, they could economically strangle North Korea, right? That that would be within their within their power to do, or at least to dramatically uh, box them in. Absolutely. You know, it, it's not only these money flows. You know, North Korea would have no energy because somewhere like 98, 99 percent of its crude oil comes from China. About 100% of North Korea's jet fuel comes from China. There is no North Korean Air Force without the Chinese. You just run down the list of all of these items. It is just so clear that China is keeping North Korea in business. Is there any scenario in your mind where, again, and I know, and you point out, and I think this is this is absolutely correct, that there's a, a strategic depth and a and a chess piece that the, that the Chinese government has with North Korea that they're not about to just give up as some act of good faith. But is there a scenario where you could see North Korea actually becoming a threat or threatening even the regime in Beijing the same way they seem to do to the rest of the world? Or is there recognition that uh, the, the Chinese would react very poorly to that? Oh, there, there are a lot of scenarios where North Korea turns its missiles north and west rather than east and south. Got to remember that uh, the North Koreans have identified us as their adversary for seven decades. They have identified the Chinese as their blood enemies for two millennia. And when Chinese talk about the U.S., they just mouth the terms. But when they actually talk about China, they get blood angry. So clearly uh, the Chinese are worried. They should be worried. But China actually supports North Korea because in the short term, uh, the North Koreans perform some very important things uh, f- and further important Chinese goals, which is to basically keep us off balance. It, it distracts us from talking about issues that we have with China. Also, it endlessly creates bargaining chips for the Chinese, because every time something happens in North Korea, we send our secretary of state and the Chinese extract concessions from us. So in the short term, you know, North Korea couldn't be any better than that. 
that for China. What are North Korea, and I want to get to, to China and U.S.-China trade deals, and, and I know we, we can uh, can touch on that subject in, in some depth with you, Gordon, but, but first, what are North Korea's strategic objectives over the next few years, if any, other than just survival? Is it just survival, or is there more than that? Well, in the short term, it is survival. But long term, they have never given up their goal of uh, destroying the South Korean state. They want to rule the entire Korean peninsula. And indeed, to be survivable over the long term, they've got to get rid of South Korea because South Korea is another Korea. And it's another Korea which is more prosperous. And North Koreans will eventually uh, understand that, which means that essentially people are going to say to the Kims, well, why are you here? You know, there's another Korea. It's just across the border. It's much better than our Korea. So, you know, they would get rid of the Kim regime if they could. And that's the reason why um, the Kims believe that they've just, at the end of the day, got to rule the entire peninsula, not just uh, north of the DMZ. Right. The mere existence of a prosperous free South Korea is an existential threat to the North Korean regime, even without being a, a, a specific military threat. It's just just its existence clearly undermines the ideology of, uh, of, of North Korea. Now, I want to ask about China and trade policy. People keep talking about this. Well, Trump, I mean, in the course of his presidential run, would talk about bad trade deals and better trade deals with China. Um, I had a trade expert on the show recently who said that China's inclusion in the World Trade Organization, for example, and what it gets away with there is just crazy. I mean, what are some of the places where we could have a better trade deal or enforce existing deals or expectations and norms with China that would benefit us? And what are some of the concrete areas where we could see change there? Well, uh, it's just across the board is is unfortunately the answer, because China's trade behavior has deteriorated, especially under Xi Jinping. What they're trying to do now and put this into a broader context um, they're trying to close off their market to foreign companies. And we see this in their Made in China 2025 initiative, where in 10 critical sectors, they're trying to attain self-sufficiency. Also, they're using cybersecurity laws and regulations to prevent foreign companies from doing business with state enterprises and state entities. So there's just so much going on there. But also, they're just violating their WTO, World Trade Organization, obligations left, right, and center. They're pretty blatant about it. And we have not done a good job in in challenging them. And we haven't done a good job in the Obama administration. And we haven't done a good job in the Bush administration either. There's a lot of blame to go around, Buck. And on the national security front, on the uh, in terms of Chinese-specific objectives south china sea taiwan uh let's start let's start with south china sea they have this base that they've built out they still have competing claims with uh other other countries in the region philippines japan and others over what the spratly islands paracel uh senkaku these are places where we can see what uh, a, a continuation of China's policy, not just of claiming these for its own. But do you think they'll try to extend more of these military bases and this reclamation from the from the sea that they've been doing? What do you think they'll be up to? Oh, of course. Uh, the the flashpoint in the South China Sea is Scarborough Shoal, which they seized in 2012. Uh, the Obama administration did not stop them, despite treaty obligations to the Philippines. 
And the Obama administration just didn't want to confront them, uh, didn't want to have a kerfuffle. But what we did do by doing nothing is we empowered the worst elements in the Chinese political system by showing everybody else that aggression worked. So China then just went on and ramped up its efforts to try to take more features in the South China Sea. They then uh, ramped up their pressure on Japan to take the Senkakus. Jap- uh, Chinese state media backed up, uh, was backing up state institutions, which are now trying to claim, lay a groundwork for a sovereignty claim on Okinawa and the rest of the Ryukyu chain as well. This is the 1930s. This looks a lot like the Third Reich. Now, I'm not saying the People's Republic of China is the Third Reich. It's obviously not. But the dynamic of an aggressor wanting more and more, that's the same. Which is the first country, Gordon, if you had to pick one that you were the most concerned about, that might find itself on the wrong end of growing Chinese uh, naval military might? Which one would it be? Philippines. Really, um, Philippines. That's where Scarborough Shoal is. That's where they're trying to take Second Thomas Shoal. Um, They've intimidated the Philippine government. You know, we complain about the new president there, Duterte, who is cozying up to Moscow and Beijing. But it's really our fault because Duterte says, and he's anti-American, so he would never like us. But he has a really good point when he says, where's the Seventh Fleet? I mean, he makes the point, you didn't defend us, Washington, so we can't rely on you. And I think this is important because this hurts our relationships with our other treaty partners like Japan and South Korea and the rest of it. This calls into question everything like NATO. This really is one of the reasons why we're seeing a deterioration in peace and stability around the world. You let them take Georgia. That's George Bush's fault. You let them take Crimea and eastern Ukraine. That's Obama's fault. You see all of these problems of aggressors trying to redraw their borders by force. And we have the 1930s on our, on our doorstep right now. Gordon Chang is author of The Coming Collapse of China and Nuclear Showdown, North Korea Takes on the World. Uh, Gordon, anywhere else you want to direct people for your work and your writing? I archive my stuff on, on Gordon G. Chang, and my Twitter feed is uh, Gordon, uh, Gordon, com, and my Twitter feed is Gordon G. Chang. Fantastic. Gordon, thank you so much for joining us. I know you're very busy today. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you, Buck. You know, I was thinking about this in the first hour. We were talking about Syria, and uh, I know sometimes I, I get in into the weeds on the uh, Mideast policy issues. And, and one thing that I tend to get uh, emails, and, and by the way, if you're listening and you have not yet, please do uh, go to facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. Uh, you click follow, and then you'll be in our, our show's Facebook feed. And I'll, I post things there about all news stories, thoughts, and occasionally you know, photos, videos, book recommendations, and this falls into that category. Um, for those who want a really good primer on specifically U.S., it's more U.S. history in the Mideast, but it gives you also a sense of U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East, uh, Michael Oren's Power, Faith, and Fantasy is is an excellent read, uh, and it's, it's fascinating. I think you'd really enjoy that one. I can highly recommend it. Uh, for the Lebanese Civil War, um, there are a number of books that, uh, that come to mind. The one, and I, always, I, shouldn't, I shouldn't say this begrudgingly because it is a good book, but you could read as a primer Tom Friedman's From Beirut to Jerusalem. I know people are going, boo, Tom Friedman. It's a good book, and he had some very very uh, worthwhile and relevant experience as a bureau chief in those two cities. Um, but a book that I would also recommend to you, moving on from the Friedman recommendation, would be uh, Pity the Nation, The Abduction of 
Lebanon by uh, Robert Fisk, who was a correspondent, uh, I believe for the London for the London Times. I have I have that book at home on my shelf, and it's it's excellent. And to understand the dynamics right now that are playing out in Syria, including the Assad regime, which, by the way, Assad, uh, right now we're dealing with Bashar. Before that, we're dealing with Hafez, his father. Um, and Bashar wasn't even supposed to take over. He's an ophthalmologist. He's an eye doctor by trade. But uh, Hafez was preparing this uh, regime for the inevitable upheaval that he knew was coming. And it stretches all the way. Well, you, you can look at, at Hama, which there's a whole section in Thomas Friedman's book from Beirut to Jerusalem on Hama rules. Um, Hama was a, a city that has now come back into uh, prominence because of all of the fighting, and it, it has gotten some news coverage as a result. But they leveled with artillery part of the city of Hama. It was a Muslim Brotherhood stronghold. Aleppo, which has been the heart of, until it was largely decimated recently, had been the heart of anti-Assad resistance, was also a Muslim Brotherhood stronghold, stretching back to the to the 80s and before that, when Bashar al-Assad's father Hafez had to deal with uh, dissent, upheaval, and threats to his regime. So the Syrian government, the Syrian police and police state have been preparing for this civil war for a long time. And you get that sense uh, from reading some of the history. And that's also why I wanted to bring into this today that even a even a leader as uh, as patriotic, charismatic uh, and brilliant and brave as Reagan got pulled into an unwinnable situation in Beirut. And there are so many uh, similarities between the forces and the uh, the difficulties that one would have faced and what, that we did face in Beirut that we face would face now if we were to get in deeply involved in Syria. So anyway, that's Pity the Nation is excellent. Uh, from Beirut to Jerusalem is also very good. For a more general overview of Midi's history, uh, Power, Faith, and Fantasy by Michael Oren is excellent. Um, please also download the show. Uh, you can play it on demand on the iHeart app and do me a favor and subscribe. Those of you who are on iTunes, you can just go to Buck Sexton with America Now on iTunes, click subscribe. And if you really like the show and want to make me a super happy guy, tell a friend or two about it. See if they'll download it as well and check it out there. Uh, team, it is an honor and a privilege as always to have gotten to hang out with you. Look forward to joining you again tomorrow. Uh, as always, same time, same place. And yes, Shields High.